0: Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakapenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in into today's episode.
1: G'day everyone, Greg Canavan here solo today for the ninth episode of What's Not Priced In. Uh, i booted Carol from the studio just for this week. Uh, I've organised an interview with fund manager uh, Romano uh, Salatena uh, from Katana Asset Management. Uh, I've been reading Romano's stuff on, on Livewire uh, for some time uh, and I find that a lot of the things that he writes about uh, I uh, have an affinity with. So a little bit of behavioural bias this week. I'm talking to someone who I guess thinks a little bit like me. But look, we, we run through um, Romano's views on the Aussie market. He tells us why he's got 35% cash uh, uh, weighting to his fund. And this is a fund that's outperformed consistently over 17 years, so certainly worth listening to why he's still holding uh, higher cash levels. Spoiler alert, he thinks the Aussie market is still uh, overvalued uh, and the equity risk premium is not enough to compensate investors for the risk they're taking. We also talk about commodities, the energy transition, uh, EVs, Uh, talk about his uh, fund process of of how he's generated that outperformance over time, Uh, and then we get into what Romano thinks is not priced in, in the market, and he runs through quite a number of different things that he thinks the market isn't pricing in right now, Uh, and then we finish off with a bit of a philosophical discussion, uh, which I think is quite interesting if you're interested in managing your own money and and dealing with the emotions of that. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we will be back next week uh, with Kirill uh, for the discussion on uh, valuations. I think at the end of last week's episode, uh, we mentioned that we would do something on valuations um, if we got enough thumbs up and enough comments from you guys. And uh, we certainly did get that. And uh, we will look at running a bit of a, a podcast on the valuation approach that I use next week. So um, hope you enjoy this week's and we'll catch up with you, again, with you again soon. See ya. Romano Sanatella, thanks very much for joining us on the What's Not Priced In podcast. How are you going? Yeah, well, thanks, Greg. Uh, so you're joining us today. We normally have uh, my other co-host, Kirill, in the studio, but I thought we'd mix it up a little bit and get a – a fund manager on uh, to discuss uh, markets uh, you'll give us your take on what you think is not priced into markets at this stage whether that's an opportunity uh, or a threat we'll get to that down the track but i thought we could maybe start off for people who don't know you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your fund katana asset
0: management yeah thanks greg Uh, Okay, a bit about myself, so I started out, did a Bachelor of Business Information Systems degree, worked for seven years as a computer systems analyst, which I really enjoyed, but my passion was always investing, Uh, finally made the break in stock broking, and then eventually into funds management. Uh, We set up Katana, we started the process in 2003, it took us two years to get all the the bits and pieces in place, the license and and everything else here, Uh, and there's now four of us that actually run the money, so there's uh, myself and two other portfolio managers uh, Giuliano Salatena, uh, who's the same surname, coincidentally, uh, Brad Shallard, and um, also Hendrik Bothma, our analyst here. Uh, the three portfolio managers have been working together in our 13th year of working together, so that shows a lot of stability, which is good, and a lot of depth as well. A lot of funds would have one or two PMs, we've got three PMs. Uh, and I think importantly too, we're all quite um, big personalities, quite egotistical, uh, quite robust in terms of our opinions and so there's no yes men in the teams you know where we are critically challenging each other and, and our views in the markets and stocks um pretty much daily i think the fact that we're in our 13th year of working together means we've probably got that balance right we haven't um shot anyone yet and uh and at the same time we're still able to um you know get the performance that we're getting there uh so yeah four of us running the money first one was set up in in effectively in january 2006 uh, and we have an Unlisted Fund, which we set up in April 2011. So I think importantly for, you know, people looking at a fund such as ours, there's 17 years of data now to assess how we've actually um, gone over a, a reasonable period of time. I was going to say, and over that 17 years, there has been solid
1: outperformance uh, of the market. And I probably want to dive into maybe talking about the process that you guys use in that's generated that outperformance over some time. Uh, and I think you just mentioned there, uh, ego was was something that uh, you guys all have, which is pretty much a characteristic, I think, of a lot of people in fund management. But I think the other thing is trying to manage that ego, right? And, and the market can make all of us very humble. So um, I'd be interested to dig into a few of those things in a little bit. But firstly, I just wanted to ask you, maybe views on the Aussie market as it stands right now. We're recording this on Thursday, the 20th of July. Uh, The Aussie market has pretty much gone sideways for two years, Uh, the ASX 200. A lot of volatility within that sideways movement. Uh, So a lot of risk and not a lot of return for that risk. And I note that one of the sayings that you uh, have in your written pieces are the price you pay for a seat at the table in the market is volatility. So we are getting plenty of that volatility at the moment. Um, what's your What's your view? I, I mean, we've just had the sharpest rate rise in a generation. Uh, are you seeing the market uh, as cheap at the moment? Are you seeing it as expensive? Are you neutral? What's your view?
0: Oh, look, very clearly the market's not cheap. Um, you know, we, we look at the equi- equity risk premium and we're, you know, at sort of multi-decade lows. So you can sort of see that, you know, when we were writing extensively two or three years ago, one of the main themes that just kept recurring week after week was the fact that you've got interest rates at, you know, 0. 0.25 or 0. 0.5, and you've got bank, you know, dividend yields at sort of five and a half, six percent 6%, fully frank grace, update 9%. You know, there was a very clear case for why you should be in bank shares as opposed to bank deposits. I think that's completely inverted now. I think, you know, it's it's turned on its head. When you, when you can get 6% in corporate bonds or... You know, four and a half to five percent in sort of um, you know term deposits with a big four bank. I don't think it makes sense the current um, risk premium that you're getting from equities. So I think very clearly the market is not cheap, and I think that what we're seeing at the moment is is a, a dichotomy or a digression between um, your your technical indicators or your sentiment and and your fundamentals. And I think that technicals continue to improve and fundamentals continue to deteriorate. Uh, you mentioned monetary policy and, you know, it's well documented. Monetary policy is a laggard policy. There is a duration of time where, you know, before it starts to bite. And I think two things have accentuated that in this current cycle. One is the TFF, the term funding facility by the, by the you know, RBA. That's 180 to $200 billion worth of fixed rate loans that otherwise wouldn't have been written that are now starting to roll off. As a simple example, you know one of the, one of the guys in our team, you know his mortgage rolled off at two percent, and his rolled gone from two to seven. You know that has to bite. So I think that that you know this eighteen next eighteen months as these fixed rates roll off, roll over. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing, Greg, is that we also saw, um, a, you know, a, a real COVID buffer built up. So people were unable to travel. they weren't able to spend it as they normally would. Uh, and they were, you know, very worried. So what do they do? They save more. And the savings rate in Australia went over 20% briefly, which is, you know, extraordinary. Um, it takes time for these buffers to, to burn through. And I think we're getting to the point into that now. I don't think we have felt the impact of monetary policy yet. I think we're about to feel the impact of monetary policy. So I think that's the first thing about the Australian market. The other thing, though, that we are worried about is, you know, Uh, Because we do use technicals as part of our process is that the longer we see this market um, track sideways out of serious correction, surprising our view, the less likely it is that we will actually see a serious correction because the closer we are to the earnings recovery, you know, there's no doubt that corporates have to see uh, um, earnings decline, and we're seeing that. You know, a so few of the early companies in the, in the confession season are starting to put their numbers out in the marketplace now, so we're starting to see the first signs of that. But earnings have to decline, you know, in aggregate. But if if the market, you know, finally has that rec- recognition and you know finally starts to react to that when we were in sight of the earnings recovery, they'll look through the earnings valley to the other side and they'll see that you know the, the Feds and the RBA is already dropping rates. They'll see that corporate earnings have bottom and starting to pick up. We may not see you know, a serious price correction. And this is always the part that we talk a lot about. You know, The market is part art, part science. It was 100% science and scientists and mathematicians would be the, the wealthiest people in the world. But it's part art, part science. The science part is we know that corporate earnings have to decline. The art part is we don't know how much that's been factored in to um, what investors are thinking. We have some insights. You know, for example, we're seeing a you know very high level of um, of of um, cash weightings across the spectrum, uh, more so than institutional and reits uh, and and um, professional investors and retail investors, but nonetheless, as you know, we're seeing a high level of um, short positions, which are starting to unwind now as it's getting covered. So these are the two things that we sort of wrestle with, um, and you know, our viewpoint has to be flexible. We've been sitting overweight cash for the best part of twelve months, and it's just been some really good alpha, some really good. You know, bottom-up stock selection that's enabled us to continue to outperform. But we know that over the cycle, you can't outperform if you get the beta question wrong. If you get the market weighting question wrong, eventually it'll catch up with you. And so we've done a lot of work around where is. And you know, we're sitting on we're sitting on forty percent cash, sitting on thirty-three at the moment. You know, what, what does it look like? What's a scenario where we start to deploy more of that capital?
1: And what is that scenario? Or is that an
0: ongoing question? It's daily. It's a daily question. Um, sometimes intraday. Um, look, I think I think you've got to be flexible. You've got to understand that the fundamentals have deteriorated uh, at the same time as as the markets become more expensive in, in simplistic terms. So you have to understand that one of those two things has to give. Now, you know what would like to see is July is always a strong month. You know, um, August September statistically are the two weakest months together on the ASX. I think if we got to the end of September. And we hadn't seen this market start to roll over. We haven't seen a tangible change in sentiment. We we started to see some signs of this in June. The market's bounced back pretty strongly again now. But we haven't seen tangible signs this market's rolling over. And heading to October, uh, we will be forced to deploy capital.
1: I guess that uh, divergence between fundamentals and technicals is way more apparent in the US at the moment. You're just seeing S&P 500, NASDAQ going up relentlessly all the while. The fundamental data that's coming out, while not disastrous, it's pointing to a slowing U.S. economy. So, how and and the fact that the Aussie market hasn't really uh, followed that path um, this year so much. I think we peaked probably back in January and we're off those highs. So, how how much do you think we are still susceptible to a change in sentiment? In the US. And when I talk about sentiment, one of the things that we often do on this podcast each week is show the CNN fear and greed index. Mm. And for the past month, yes. over a month, it's been in extreme greed territory, yeah. relentlessly yep. up high. Investor sentiment is starting to turn around. Just recently, fund managers are now starting to talk about, oh, let's, uh you know, we think there's a good chance of a soft landing or a no landing. So this, this sentiment is really starting to grab onto the the idea that because the market's going up, I need to change my narrative because the market must be right. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the US market and how that might flow through to the Aussie market if, if it does turn back down.
0: Yeah, but I mean, firstly, I mean, you raise a really good point there. As managers, we need conviction in our beliefs, but we, we've got to avoid fixation. And, and, you know, conviction's a good thing. Fixation's a very dangerous thing. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that we could be wrong in terms of, not wrong in terms of um, corporate earnings, that's that's pretty clear cut. I think we'll be right in that in that regard. But wrong in terms of how the market reacts to that. And I think, again, that's where, you know, we are, one of the things we're probably jumping forward slightly, but one of the things that we are, that's been part of our success is that we are genuinely style agnostic. You know, we see five investment styles and two of them being, um, uh, you know, growth and, and technical analysis. We genuinely try and employ technical analysis into our thinking. It's not going to generate a buy or sell signal, but it's going to help us to fine-tune entry and exit points. It's going to help us to try and um, work out, you know, where uh, where the, the the bulk of the sentiment is is uh, heading. So, in that regard, you know, we have to be we we have to seriously uh, accept that um, sentiment may be different to what we think it should be. Or to what we think it is, you know, we've got to keep an open mind in that regard. Getting back to the question about the U.S., look, you know, the U, the old adage, the U.S. catches a cold, you know, the U.S. sneezes, and we catch a cold. I think that still applies, yep. particularly particularly in down markets when, you know, fear and panic are stronger emotions than um, than greed. So I think in that regard, I think if you look at why has the U.S. recovered the way it has, I mean, it's it's very well documented. You've got the seven mega cap tech stocks. And they have continued to see reasonable earnings growth. And I think, you know, when you look at the, the initial narrative was when interest rates started to go up, the narrative was, hang on a tick, that's bad for long duration growth assets because when you bring back, you know, when you, when you work out the, the current NPV of discounted cash flows 10 years out, when, you, when your discount rate rises, that reduces the value in today's dollar term. So the initial thinking was that's bad for tech stocks. Um, I think then the market very quickly evolved and said, well, it's bad for spec tech, i.e. companies that don't have earnings now and earnings is long dated, but for real tech, it's actually really good because in the environment we're heading into, it increased the uncertainty of earnings and the companies that have genuine earnings certainty and earnings growth are, are those big cap megatech stocks. And so I think it changed the whole narrative very quickly. So the NASDAQ, you know, pull back and then and then recover quite aggressively. So, you know, I do think that the US is very much different in terms of the, the companies that it has there. But I also do think that at some point we've seen a, a massive underperformance of commodities. You know, some of the measures that we look at show that commodities are, you know, trading um, from here needs to increase four times versus um, where, where equities are sitting at on a historical perspective so so these are things you know we sort of throw into the mix there um i do think of the american you know market has a pullback it'll impact our market it can't help but um and you know and it it explains also why we haven't risen as yet with it and also because the nuances of our market i mean we're basically a market made up of financials and, and materials and so you've got to look very closely at those two sort of sectors
1: Yeah, the lack of tech is
0: obviously holding
1: back our market relative uh, to the US. And I think just your comment on commodities there, uh, we spoke earlier about the deterioration in the economic fundamentals, that commodities have certainly reacted to that deterioration. you see, oil prices off 50% from their peak, and you can run through a number of industrial commodities that are all well off their their highs from from 2022. Uh, We didn't point out earlier that you guys are Perth-based, so you're obviously quite close to the the action in commodities. So maybe we can talk a little bit about commodities where you see the opportunities, what commodities you like, what you uh, are avoiding and, and maybe just a bit of a comment on, on China given that uh, the supposed strong reopening theme from China hasn't quite played out uh, this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, even though we're Perth-based, quite often we don't have any commodity exposure because um, you know we really are agnostic in terms of what sectors we look at. At the moment, we're in a very unusual um, place, I think it's the first time in 17 years where six of our top 10 companies happen to be in resources. And that's more of a, uh, an indication of where we don't want to be as opposed to where we do want to be. Most of the sectors in the ASX at the moment we don't want to be in based on our macro um, overview of where this, this market goes over the next little while. And so we're really struggling to find sectors that we actually think it makes sense to invest in now. We normally have fifty-five to sixty five stocks in the portfolio, so we're very risk averse and very diverse. At the moment, we're sort of running it just just um, around about mid forties, which is again is the lowest we've been in almost a decade there. So, you know, you look at that and you say, Well well, what, what resource stocks are we in? Surprisingly, it's or maybe not surprisingly, it's really just um, EV facing commodities. We don't want to be in companies that uh, have exposure to bulks and energy at the moment, and, and it all steps out when we talk about China. But on the EV facing, you know, we, we really believe that uh, even if there's recession, even if we have a hard landing, and I'm not saying that's not a base case, but if we were to have a hard landing over the next little while, next, um, you know, 12, 24 months, EV facing commodities would still, because of the the level of momentum and the low base are coming off. We would still see um, uh, growth there. Clearly, we um, you have four of our top ten stocks in the lithium space and two of our top ten stocks are in, the, in the copper space. So you know, between lithium and copper, and we don't really see any other um, EV-facing metal that we have confidence in graphite. We, we certainly don't. Notwithstanding, we're doing some work on ceria right at the moment. Um, we don't have a lot of confidence in. Um, some of the some of the rare earths and so forth, because the markets are so, um, so thin and, and opaque. Uh, and nickel is an interesting one. We're probably neutral on nickel. We think of the right opportunity, we would play it, but there's not many nickel opportunities on the Aussie market. None of them stack up on on valuation grounds that we can or that we can make work at least. So, uh, what's have, your? Yeah. I was just
1: going to ask on the yeah. on the EV uh, theme front. It, it is a reasonably. Well-known theme and a, a reasonably well well-played theme. What makes you confident that that has some some legs in in terms of an investment theme? Is it the lack of supply um, that, that's that's driving the uh, driving the uh, the growth in those stocks?
0: It's a really good question because you know, and as your podcast alludes to in its title, we don't want to be we don't want to be in, the, in in the warmth of the herd, right? We don't want to be right in that spot where everyone's feeling comfortable and we're all you know encouraging each other and so forth. We, we everyone knows find, that everyone knows that EVs yeah, 100%, 100%. are the next thing, right? But I think there's two things that EVs... Firstly, on the supply side, absolutely. We've seen um, fiscal discipline in the majors like we haven't seen in any other cycle. So we haven't seen them rush to bring on new supply ahead of the curve or you know, spend lots of capital on exploration and the like. We've seen a lot of discipline, um, returns to shareholders being rated above everything else. And the like. There's, so I think, on the on the supply side, there's going to be some some issues there, and it's well documented in copper. I do think that in the fullness of time, lithium uh, will actually be oversupplied. I don't yep. think it, you know it's not rare, and it's not. We're not talking large quantities. It's required in the same light as we are, for example, copper. So I think, at the fullness of time, I think we're, we're just because we're in the infancy of that market. You know, you always get that in new markets where you get you know the supply and demand imbalance and causes massive gyrations in the price. But that'll that'll Peter out over time and, and it'll get back to the cost curve. You know, it'll probably sit somewhere maybe five or ten percent above your, your your bottom quarter or the top quarter of the cost curve. Um so so that's you know in, in terms of those those particular commodities, but when we look at other commodities, um, we don't have the confidence right now uh, that it makes sense to be stepping into the marketplace. You know, and so even though that you've got this um, strong theme and the herd's running in this direction, because of that supply side and then the demand side, which haven't really touched on yet, because of the demand supply side, we still have that confidence. On the demand side, we do think that this is a, you know, is it's a a generational change. We think that we're coming off such a low base and that we need to see such a large increase, uh, not just in in EVs, but you know, in, in the electrification thematic full stop, the decarbonisation, you know, two sides of the same coin there. It is going to be such a large theme um, and it's going to take such a long period of time to play it, probably three to four decades. And we're in that first sort of five or so years of a three to four decade theme. You know, you can get it very wrong in the short term, but that tidal wave is going to carry you forward over time. We saw that the iron ore a good example. You know, if you had invested in 2004, in an iron ore stock, if you had seen the tsunami coming from from Chinese demand for steel, it didn't really matter what iron ore stock you invested in. Yep. You made between a hundred percent and probably two thousand percent of your capital or more. Right, that that was such a large theme. I think this is an even larger theme, um, and uh, and it's probably the first one of the first genuine themes we've seen since that that the iron ore one, especially in commodities and you've seen a bit of that play out in the lithium space i think it was the
1: first wave happened around 2016 17 there was massive rises big bear market over the next couple of years then it's gone again so i guess that's the type of thing you look you or you're talking about there is that you're going to get the cyclical downturns as as more supply comes on but the the slow the growth of demand will absorb that supply over time and those cycles will will pick up i guess that's what you're alluding to there right
0: yeah, exactly that. I mean, if you look at, say, iron ore, you bring on a new 40,000 – sorry, 40 million tonne per annum mine, and it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's sort of 5% of – less yep. than 5% of seaborne, seaborne iron ore production. But you bring on a new um, lithium mine, and it can materially – you know, it might be 30% of current spodumene demand. So it has – you get these big these big imbalances, and we saw that with the, with the lithium winter when everyone thought the, the whole – the whole shooting match was over because you had some mines come to, and they were mainly hard rock. People weren't expecting the hard rock spodumene in, in WA to get up and running as quickly as it did. When that hit the market, you know, the market was, was still growing at this level, and that was a, a big wad coming on. You know, WA is pr- producing round about 50% of the world's um, uh, lithium through hard rock at the moment, which is extraordinary. But mm. that, that demand will get soaked up very quickly, and then – You know, it's going to be such a larger market as a base that each subsequent mine and each subsequent, you know, battery factory coming on is going to have less of an impact on the price. So you get these gyrations. Now, this is the thing that's keeping us away from rare earths. We don't think rare earths will ever be a very big market. In fact, I don't think anyone's saying it'll ever be a very big market. And same as graphite, you know, when Syrah came into production, I think it produced, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was a ridiculously high percentage yeah. of the world's existing graphite suddenly coming on one new mine. Yep. And I don't think they've run it at full production you know, for for 12 months as yet. And I've got on carrying maintenance at the moment again because of, they've oversupplied the world's graphite. Yep. That's the issue we have with, with rare earths. We don't, they're too opaque and those markers are too shallow. So lithium makes sense over the short to medium term copper makes sense to us the short, medium, and long term.
1: You said you were avoiding uh, energy, but I do note you have beach energy in the portfolio. I've uh, also got beach in the portfolio. It's been uh, a long-term uh, value play, uh, and it's been cheap for, for many years. Is that more based on the fact that it's got this weights here project uh, coming into view that's going to add considerable value if they get the development right and all, the, all those sorts of things? That's behind that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's a couple of things, but it's you it's, it's spot on. It's a, it's a bottom-up um, opportunity. We can put things in the portfolio from, you know, based on a top-down theme, or it can be a, a bottom-up based on growth prospects, evaluation prospects, or even quality prospects. And that's really a bottom-up driven opportunity there. We think that, you know, there's still, well, we've almost had the perfect storm um, of bad news flow for gas producers, domestic producers in this country. Uh, and, you know, we think that that's now abating. I think the, the, a bit of, um term looking here politely, I think the government's starting to realise that, you know, the best way to alleviate high prices is high prices, right? High prices will create more capital going into something, which will create greater supply and influence of time, greater supply will, you know, reduce the price. Now, you know, we're not in a government that is, I think, Mr. Chalmers is not showing himself to be particularly learned on um, uh, on capitalist economics, but I think even he'll... Nor, nor is it's... Chris Bowen. <laughs>
1: That's right. Former treasurer.
0: Yeah. So, so I, think, I think what we're, we're going to see at some point, though, is that there's this realisation here that, you know, you can't keep um, making it more onerous to produce domestic gas and expect greater supply. Like It's, it's, it's just nonsensical. So I think we I think we're through the worst of that argument. I think you know a lot of the reservation chatter and you know price caps and so forth. We're going to we're, there's still some work to be done, but we're through the worst. And I think that Beach and Santos are very well positioned, and we've got Santos as a holding as well, are very well positioned to capitalise on that recovery in the domestic uh, gas price and the recovery in the the sentiment around the domestic gas supply. Uh, Woodside, you know, we we went very hard on our portfolio in the low 20s and we were 100% out of that now. And we don't understand the case for Woodside. In our numbers, we've got at least two, possibly three years of EPS declines. So on top of the fact that it's on the nose from an ESG perspective, you have got EPS declines, we've got some risks around um, project approvals, we've got some risks around uh, execution, uh, and, you know, the commodity price has been battered. Uh, it doesn't make sense to us at these prices. We would need to see oil through $100 a US a barrel before it would sort of dust off the file on Woodside.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Woodside's more of a, a macro play on, on the oil price. I, I, I would say, given that I have Santos and Woodside as well in the portfolio, Woodside, uh, for me, it's held up remarkably well, given it that has oil indeed, prices yeah. have fallen 50%. And I think that's yep. a tick for it, for sure.
0: Having said that, it's interesting because when all prices bounced aggressively, Woodside just kept sitting there 21, 22, 21, 22, and it was, wasn't something triggered. I think the same will be, it will see in reverse. At some point, there'll be some factor that will trigger that that um, derailment although again you know when you look at if you want to play that theme as you say how do you play it now BHPP has been absorbed by Woodside yep. you've really got two options if you're a, a blue chip investor it's Woodside and Santos so yep. you're right you know if the if thematic if the starts to get some airtime, time then, then it will recover then it'll at least hold its own and uh, possibly recover from here and if, if the charts tell you to get out you, uh, you get out that's the way I, I look at it yep indeed uh, yeah
1: the other thing I was going to ask, just on energy uh, policy, you touched on it there before, and uh, I see no reason to be polite when it comes to the way our politicians are looking at energy policy in Australia, and I think one of the the big risks that we face as a country in this energy transition is moving towards a higher cost of energy. And, and throughout history, that's never happened before. Every form of energy discovery has uh, lowered the cost of energy, which is gone on to create wealth in in forms of freeing up resources for other things. Yet this energy transition is going to impose additional costs on us, whether that's through electricity, whether it's through the safeguard mechanism that is being put on a lot of our larger industrial companies. Just wondering how you guys see that as a longer-term theme, uh, whether you discuss it or whether it doesn't really play into uh, your stock picking process.
0: It doesn't overly play into it because, you know, we're focused more, our time horizon generally is you know 12 to 24 months and and whilst we look at the big themes because you want to make sure that if we you know get it wrong over 12 24 months what does it look like you know so we do give some thought to it but we don't spend a lot of um a lot of our time thinking through those things i would say though that you know um from i remember just a short story i remember probably the best part of 15 years ago talking to the one of the preeminent uh, experts in solar Sorry, in, in wind, sorry, it's actually wind generation in Australia, and he said to me at that time that the, um, that all the energy produced from this particular wind turbine at, at that stage uh, didn't even cover the amount of energy that went into producing the wind turbine itself. Now, we've come a long way, and I've got confidence. You look at the, the pricing you know, of, your, of your PV your photovoltaic cells, and how, you know, we've, we've gone down that, that curve. It's, it's, it's been an enormous cost curve. I think the final piece, the puzzle, um, from little we know, is is really around the battery technology. I think that yeah. once you get that battery technology where it needs to be, and we might, we're still clear some way off that, I think then we would hold hope that you'd actually be producing power at a cheaper cost than traditional fossil fuels. I think that, you know, you've got, when you look at wind, especially in this country, you've got land and you've got wind, I think we'll be well and truly producing at um, at costs are a, a fraction of the kilowatt hour cost you're paying now for traditional coal fire and, and even, uh, uh, well, certain coal fires are cheapest, but, you know, gas especially.
1: Yep. Let's, uh, let's turn to the fund, and uh, I mentioned at the start uh, there's been long-term outperformance and the effect of compounding even a small uh, percentage of outperformance over a long period of time can result in a huge, uh, uh, I guess, different outcome in terms of the, the your financials from investing in that. Can we talk a little bit about the process that generates that outperformance? I think, uh, I, I'm not sure who said it, but um, I remember reading somewhere that someone said there is no point trying to manage money in the market if you can't beat the market. Because otherwise, mm. you can just sit in an index fund. So you guys have obviously been successful in that, uh, and and that all comes down to process. Uh, so I wouldn't mind getting a few insights into the Katana process that's generated that outperformance.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, just to recap, I think you know the power of compound is extraordinary you know, um, over the 17 years, if you invested in the top um, ETF, we always get asked this question, why don't I just put my money in ETF? If you invested the top ETF on the ASX, the STWXW, you you have 192% return uh, net of all fees. And that's based on the index return of two hundred four percent If you invested in the same time frame in a fund, that got an extra 2.8% per annum net. So 2.8% per annum net doesn't sound much, but you've got 2.8% per annum net over the index, then the returns would be 403%, which is what we've got in Katana net of all fees. So that 2.8%, but compounding over 17 years is the difference between 192% and 403%. So you're absolutely spot on. People don't realize the power of compounding. We all think we do and we all talk about it, but it is ex- extraordinary and it's a hockey stick. The longer you're in, the more yep. that the compounding takes off. You know, like I love telling people Warren Buffett's uh, 99% of his capital after the age of 55. You know, it's not because he's a better investor now, he's got, got such a large capital base. Yep. So in terms of how we've gone about it, one of the things that gives us confidence, and, and I'll be honest, we are nervous investors. We we don't ever sit here going, well, that was a great month, you know, let's just take it easy. I mean, we are always constantly worried about what can go wrong, where are we are going to make our next dollar of alpha. You know, we're constantly thinking in those terms. I mean, I'd hate to be myself in some regards because I'm always constantly worried about you know what's next and and um, and how are we going to continue to outperform. Um, but one thing that gives us a little bit of confidence is that over every time frame we've, we've had our outperformance index, so it's not just over 12 months or over you know since inception. We haven't back ended our numbers some big returns 17 years ago or fronted our numbers with some big returns now. There's that constancy of returns um, over every time frame. And one of the things I think that's due to was a couple of things. First here is that we've removed any artificial constraints. So we've tried to say what, you know, we, we love constraints. We love process. We have a lot of constraints, a lot of process, but where they add value. So where we see things that are artificial constraints, we've taken them out. Now it's also worked against us because a lot of asset allocators can't get their minds around us because we don't, We've taken a lot of these constraints out, and we understand that, and we respect that. But you know, simple examples are, you know, I'm a resources fund or I'm not, I'm a non-resources fund. I'm a big cap funder, or I'm a small cap fund, I'm a value investor, or I'm a growth investor. Um, you know, all these things don't add value to just plain old performance. They help um, pigeonhole you, and, and you know, help a variety of different um, you know asset allocators put us in the, in the right mix but they don't actually add out our long-term performance. And, and another big one is in terms of thinking in terms of the index, right? I'll, I'll put this to you, Greg, which just sounds ludicrous. If you don't like the banking sector, but you don't dislike it, so you don't like it, but you don't dislike it, you'd have 25% of your money in the index. It's great. Because if the banking sector makes up 25%, you don't like it, but you don't dislike it, that means you're neutral. So your starting weight is 25%, and then you, you dial it up and down depending on how you're thinking. So if we don't like something, but we don't dislike it, it's zero weighting, right? And then we'll dial it up where we think that it can add genuine alpha to our performance. Now, obviously, we need to benchmark our numbers against the index so people can see how we're performing. And obviously, you know, we need to um, to, to market in those terms. But we don't, oh, as much as possible, we try and avoid thinking those terms. We don't say to ourselves, right, Banks are twenty five percent. We've been have some bank exposure. We started at a, at a zero weighting, and where the case is there, like at the moment and in the last few days, it's hurt us. But I think we'll be okay over time. In the last, you know, we have zero weighting to the big four banks. You know, we've we've been our weighting to big four banks has been between zero and thirty five percent over the last seventeen years. And at the moment, we're at zero percent exposure. So that's the first thing is I think we've reduced the artificial con, constraints. The second thing is that we've we've have got really good process. Like you know, we've been managing money for thirty years and seventeen years together. Um, Brad and myself and jadana has been in his thirteenth year. Hendricks and you, but he's in his fourth year with us, and he'll be here for the next fifteen years, or else we'll um put a contract out on him. But um, you know, we've 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 got some really good process. Like we've got a hundred and fifty five point checklist that we can optionally go through if we're concerned about how companies company's performing. And that's just 155 different ways we've lost money in the past 30 years. And each time we lose money, we, we document that and work out how we're going to try and avoid it next time. You know, we've got 11 key criteria. We've got a very well-defined process about how a, a stock is, makes it into the portfolio, what weighting it gets, um, how we manage our stop losses. You know, if you said to me, uh, if you're interviewing a manager, say said, what's the most important thing about... Um, uh, how you manage your money, I would say it's how they manage their, their losses. Yep. Like when is it going to take care of themselves, but how you manage the stocks that are underperforming your portfolio, that'll determine whether or not you'll outperform index long-term or not. Uh, and then the third thing I think is really the people like, you know, I did mention at the outset we have got big egos and I'm not going to shy away from that. We have got big egos but um, and, and big personalities, but that, that drives us. But at the same time, we, we are humble enough to realize that we're going to get things wrong. We do get things wrong. And unless you have humility, you're not going to be able to recognize it. You're not going to be able to pivot. And I think you also need, you know, character and integrity. If you don't have those things, then, it, then it's a question of time before, you, you know, you're going to blow up the portfolio or, or you know, destroy other people's wealth. Uh, and then the, probably the final thing is, is um, you know, over 20% of the money that we manage is our own money. And we started a journey in this fund, along these funds along with everyone else in, in 2006, and we've, we add money every quarter um, to, to our funds. Now, you know, we are highly incentivized to get the best returns possible, on a risk-adjusted basis. There's a lot of things that I would contemplate doing in my personal play account that I'd never even dream about doing in the the Katana funds. You know, we are very risk-averse. We're not going to run these funds for for a big performance fee and and, and risk things. We're really about making sure that we preserve our capital and get the best risk-adjusted return we can, given our capital is here tomorrow.
1: I noticed uh, one thing that you wrote in in one of your reports, it's only a small thing but very powerful, is uh, know thyself uh, when it comes to ha- how mm. to handle your emotions in the market. Uh, and I think I first saw that saying, even though it's an ancient Greek or Egyptian bit of wisdom, I first saw that in a, a, a book called The Money Game and it was written by uh, a guy called Adam Smith. That was his pseudonym. Um, and he also wrote this really interesting piece that I've. Uh, I think it's very powerful, and it says, um, uh, "If you don't know who you are, the market, um, the market is a. It was something along the lines. If you don't know who you who you are, the market is a place where you will find that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just wondering, what sort of experiences you've had over the seventeen years? It's really sort of made that statement quite stark to you, and, and thought, um, you know crap, I'm managing managing other people's money here. Uh, this, is, this is serious and am I, uh, am I up for the challenge?
0: Yeah, you're spot on. Is really humbling. Like I, I had to come to realisation and it took me probably the best part of a decade and a half to, to realise it. it. Well, not, to, to face up to it, the fact that I am actually wired in a way which fundamentally is um, flawed in terms of managing money. Uh, and and I probably should step through that so that I don't scare away all our existing investors there, Greg. But you know the 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 old um, the old four in human emotions, you know, fear, greed, ignorance, and hope. Those four primeval emotions, which are written about so beautifully in Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, which is probably my all time favorite investment book. Yep. You know those. How you respond to those emotions will, will go a long way to understanding yourself and understanding how you will be successful otherwise as a simple example when stocks go up you know fear greed ignorance and hope in and of themselves are not about emotions it's that we is that those emotions come to the fore at the wrong time for example if a stock goes up the appropriate response should be to have hope that the stock will go higher right so that would be if you're wired in a way where your natural emotional response is the stock's gone up i hope it's going to go higher you'll be a successful investor slash trader if your natural wiring which is mine is that if a stock goes up I fear that I will lose part of my profit if I don't sell right that is that is uh, that is a flawed wiring uh, another simple example is when a stock drops you know um, a flawed wiring would be to have hope in that situation so if you hope you recover your money that's the way you're naturally wired and you can you, know, you can do it by experiencing it and yep. that's a flawed be a flawed behavioral response if a stock drops and you fear you'll lose more therefore you stop it out that's a great behavioral response and so it's been a real journey we're working with my brother Giuliano I've I've come to realize that he is wired perfectly how a trader should be wired like his natural emotional responses are, are in line with how they should be my natural emotional responses are diametrically opposed to what they should be so it's taken a long time to understand that and then to put in place safeguards to first, you know recognize to know thyself you know the first step in any 12-step help program is to admit you've got a problem to understand the problem and then to you know to recognize that so you know i have to put in place things like i have to consciously sit above my emotional response and, and understand what I should do. We've had to put in place a group thinking, group process. So as a team, we manage all our losses as a team uh, through a formal process, which removes the person that's championed that stock in the portfolio. So there's just so a couple that, of that ways. So That effectively runs checks and balances on, on the personality then, right? Correct, yeah.
1: Um, the other thing I was going to ask is just on the – you mentioned right at the start the equity risk premium in the Aussie market, uh, and really for, for those who might not be familiar with that term, the equity risk premium is the uh, additional return over and above you get uh, from the, of a risk-free asset to invest in, in equities. So the extension of that question is what, and I don't know if this is how you guys uh, go about your valuation process, but what discount rate are you looking at um, or a required rate of return when you're investing equity. So if we look at the Aussie 10-year bond yield as a proxy for a risk-free rate, it's around about 4% at the moment. Uh, we chuck a 5% equity risk premium on top of that. Uh, we're looking at a discount rate of around about 9%. Over time, I've used 8% and I find that that generally gets me in at a, at a pretty, good, uh, pretty good long-term price. Just wondering what you guys use if you do use that type of valuation approach.
0: Yeah, well, we do, and, and I think I think you're you're more or less around the mark there. I think that the bigger question we try and come back to for us at least is, we just keep it simple and we say if you're a, an investor, if you're a mum and dad trying to live off your income, trying to fund your retirement, uh, trying to save up for a, an asset, you know, where does it make sense for you to have your money in the bank, and where does it make sense for you to have your money? in bank stocks, as an example, and dividend yielding stocks. And I think there has to be, you know, at least sort of two to 300 basis points differential to justify the risk that you're going to take on. So a simple example, you know, the Aussie rate's what 4.1 at the moment. So, which is risk-free. You know, we're getting now, we're seeing, I think it's probably getting towards the end of the cycle But the big four banks or some of the big banks have been fighting for deposits to replace the TFF. So, you know, we've been getting four and a half plus percent on NAB deposits, right? Just for our spare cash in Katana. Yeah, right. Which is, you know, we can get slightly higher than some of the regional banks and other players, but when you get that risk free, pretty much, that's a great return. Now, if you're saying to me, I can get four and a half percent knowing with 100% certainty that in 90 days' time I've got my capital back, or I can get maybe five and a half, six percent with some franking credits, mind you, but then. With uncertainty around what my capital looks like in 90, 90 days time, to us it doesn't it doesn't pass the pub test, it doesn't pass a common sense test. You know, every day of the week you're going to say, well, I've got four and a half percent with certainty. That makes sense to me. I don't think the market's really adjusted. Like I've been surprised at how we haven't seen a real adjustment in terms of you know at, at institutional level. Yes, we have. We've seen uh, you know bond flows. At strong levels, and I think with, with bonds now starting to roll over, or yield starting to peak or roll over, you could see some, some bond capital growth as well, which might make it more attractive. But I have been surprised that the equity market is this strong with the, the risk free rate so high.
1: I'll give you one example. A couple of weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago, we did on this podcast, I showed the difference between the valuation for Commonwealth Bank and and JP Morgan. Mm. And Commonwealth Bank uh, was trading at a a price to book of about 2.2 times, and JP Morgan at the time was about 1.6 times. And JP Morgan, I think their uh, return on equity projections were the same. Uh, So their profitability was the same, except you're paying way up here for Commonwealth Bank. And you're getting a reasonably good price for for JP Morgan, which is you know one of the preeminent banks in the world. Obviously, slightly different business models, but that just really showed the difference between the perception of the U.S. banking system versus how investors are looking at uh, probably the, the the best and and most solid uh, bank in the in the ASX. Um, couple last couple of questions. Uh, the name of the podcast is "What's Not Priced In," so I wouldn't mind getting your take on. I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of what's not priced in anyway through, throughout this conversation, but maybe just a bit more explicitly, uh, if there's any one particular area that you think is a, an opportunity or a threat, uh, what's not priced in from from Katana's point of view?
0: I think what's not priced in is, is um, three or four things, but I think there's still things that we're, we're too early on. So we've done, you know, I think if you look at um, uh, consumer discretionary slash retail, I think now that they've been some of them have been overly discounted, but it is still the wrong time. It's still too early to move. I think REITs haven't been priced in terms of what we're going to see on the downside yet, but and that'll create the, the opportunity post that. I think you know you, you're starting to see funds that are getting gated; they're um, they're limiting returns. We saw we've seen a couple of the last week now, a couple of big funds come out and either restrict uh, distributions or you know to 25 percent of of um, flows or yeah. or, um, or just to, to actual earnings. So we're starting to see, you know, some things happen there. So I think that that's a, another one there, which I don't think is fully priced in as yet. Um, non-banks is a great example of something where, you know, we're seeing non-banks that are being priced for failure. A simple example is Pepper Money. We've done an enormous amount of work and it was a 289 float. It's trading thirty odds a day. You know, it's uh, five times earnings, but but people have priced it for failure. If you actually do the work, they've had a twenty one percent KAR for eight years, compound annual growth rate of twenty one percent per annum. You know, they've been around for twenty two years operating. Great opportunity as the banks jump out of a lot of this areas. Like for example, banks jumping out of auto finance and the like, creating super opportunities for Pepper and Liberty and the, and others in that space. So, you know, I think that the non-bank sector, I think that, uh, that, you know, people haven't priced in just how important that is and how much money they're generating. And I think in the fullness of time. But again, if you look at me and say, well, would you go hard on Pepper today? No, I wouldn't. We've built a little bit of a position because we don't want to miss it. We know we're going a bit early. And we often go a little bit early on the first portion of what we buy. Um, But, you know, at some stage you'll see Pepper in our top 10 holdings. I've got no doubt about that. So I think that hasn't been priced in how much value is there. And then I think also, you know, we talked a bit about China, but I think there'll be a time to go hard on bulks. So, you know, iron ore and, and coal and the like, and, there'll be, and, and LNG, and there'll be time to go hard on the or the LNG energy um, complex. Uh, but I think what has to happen there yet is, and people need to understand a bit more about the China theme, we're getting closer now. We didn't really buy the um, China reopening story, but we are getting close now to where... To The um, central authorities have to look at some serious stimulus because it is starting to get um, at the point where it's bordering on social unrest, and that's the point that they'll be forced to act. Now, I think people need to understand. We were saying just recently that stimulus on on infrastructure projects and the like won't have the same effect. You know, it, it has been that that button has been pressed so many times now. They don't need any more housing. There's, there is a very large oversupply of housing. You could argue there's still a need for infrastructure, particularly the electrification of the grid. You could say that there's still a massive need and that'll be great for copper and so forth. So yes, there's some big energy infrastructure projects, which they can still press the button on. But in the scheme of it, if you look at the this stimulus package, this next one, which we, we suspect will be in the next, you know, little while, um, if not sooner, uh, we would say that it's not going to have the same tangible impact on commodity prices as past ones. And so I think, I think those days are gone. Um, the days of a big Chinese stimulus package driving on or price, yeah, it'll drive a little bit, and yeah, it'll have a bit of a sugar hit from sentiment, but it's not going to have the same impact. They've got to work on how they, uh, what, what other buttons they can um, press now. And obviously in the services area and the like to get a meaningful recovery. But nonetheless, you know, the box will will still have a uh, a recovery at some point. And I think on the energy complex, I do really still like that. I just think people have dramatically underestimated the the pace at which we're going to be able to replace uh, fossil fuels at the same time that we're spending, you know, less and less on exploration and new development. So I think you could see some really interesting price spikes in, you know, Crude over the next couple of years. Uh, And I think if you're nimble and you can recognise where the signs are lining up, I think you can play those and do really well because stocks will probably move disproportionately.
1: And especially if uh, Europe isn't as lucky as it was last winter and and has a bit of cold weather, I think that'll be interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Romano, last question, Uh, tough one for you. What books or book are you reading at the moment, mate?
0: Well, I only read two types of books. I I read... um, Religious and historical religious books, and I read books on the market. So I'm a pretty boring. I don't read any, uh, not any uh, fiction at all. But I've been trying to nut my way through um, Saint John of the Cross, um, Long Dark Night of the Soul. And uh, if anyone's been able to finish that book, I, I take my hat off to you. Congratulations. I'm stuck at about eighty percent of the way through, and it is just very slow going to understand uh, what is actually meant. And uh, and the application to one's life. So there you go.
1: And what, what's what's the roadblock with, with finishing it? Is it trying to trying to process it? Is it uh, trying to apply it to a, a modern world where you're a money manager?
0: <laughs> yeah, all of the above. Just I think the thinking is so different to to the way we think about the world today. You know, the embracing of suffering, the embracing of cross, the embracing of complete and total despair. To void oneself of anything that that is material, uh, and anything that is of importance to one's life, to then find uh, enlightenment, uh, and from a Christian perspective, I think it is so difficult to understand and to understand the applicability to one's life. Um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a really tough read, but I'm committed to get through it.
1: Well, it sounds really interesting, and and I've, you know you make an interesting point in that. Uh, for example the the stoic um philosophy was i think christianity borrowed a lot from from the stoics and and uh you know the culture of the romans were built around stoicism and victorian england was a very stoic society these these powerful empires were all built around that embrace of of suffering whereas our society these days is so immersed in in materialism and consumerism that uh well, a that's not even taught anymore. So, if you want to find it, you have to find it yourself. And and back in the uh, back in the old days, these philosophies were all taught in school. So we could we could talk for another hour about this because mm. I find it very interesting with with young kids and, and trying to teach them the the right way. But is that something that you try to impart with uh, with your kids as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We 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 run from suffering, right? But suffering is unavoidable. Yet through suffering, if you look back on any period of suffering in your life, it is when you've grown the most. Whether it's as a money manager, like I grew the most as a money manager during the GFC, it was the most difficult period of my life, you know, no doubt. Weeks where we weren't really sleeping, Uh, but it was also where we we grew the most in terms of our process, where we finally we finally cemented our stop loss um, process and understanding of how to manage those situations. Uh, it, we, we grew in terms of understanding quality of business and the like there. So, yeah, you know, suffering is something that we, we as human beings run from and try and avoid. And, and uh, I still do today. But if we can, maybe not embrace it, but accept it. You know, when we come to the other side, if we, if we accept suffering for what it's meant to be, we always come out the other side better.
1: Very true words, and uh, we'll leave it there, mate. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for uh, having us,
0: Greg. Hopefully catch up again soon. Yeah, definitely. Cheers. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support.
0: Hope to see you next week.